Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported by our listener patrons. If it's become a regular part of your routine, if you'd like to see it continue and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. The idea that we get so kind of oversimplified in our conversations about animal agriculture, or we get so oversimplified in our understanding of agriculture as a whole, we say, okay, agriculture is bad. The fossil carbon industry is bad, 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 bad. We just need everything to be new. And that kind of oversimplification of life, it's what's driven so many revolutions that have left you with the same core problems that you started with. That was Rebecca Burgess, who we actually had on the podcast previously in episode 61. She's the executive director of Fibershed, chair of the board for Carbon Cycle Institute, and the author of Harvesting Color. For me, our first interview was so profound that I knew we had to have her back on the show after hearing about the launch of her latest book, Fibershed, growing a movement of farmers, fashion activists, and makers for a new textile economy. How did we come to globalize our fashion system and what issues arose because of that? And why do we have to be critical of venture capital-backed biotech novel solutions to our ecological crises? This barely scratches the surface of what we discuss in our upcoming two-part interview. So without further ado, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So last time we started off by hearing about your early inspirations to care for nature, I'd love to begin our dialogue today by going right into hearing about what Fibershed is for our listener who may be hearing about it for the first time and how your vision for it came about. A Fibershed is kind of like a noun, you could say. It's also an organization at this point, but it's a descriptor term that outlines a strategic geography, and that strategic geography defines a textile resource base. So people talk about food sheds, or they talk about water sheds, places where you get your food, places where you get your water. Fiber shed is a defined geography that helps us connect with the land that provides us the fiber and the dye and whatever other materials we need for our clothing. And that's technically hopefully being done in as small a geography as possible to inspire people to actually get to know the land base, to understand the complexities and the trade-offs and the the issues that come up when we manage landscapes for material culture. And so the idea is that right now our fiber sheds are gargantuan, they're internationally defined. Basically they're they're defined by trade deals, <laughs> more or less. And so we're we're kind of saying, you know, in in spite of all of this policy that has created these very large geographies where we don't have a lot of, they're very opaque for the wearer, we're trying to build intimacy and connection so that these relationships between the wearer and landscapes are actually transparent. 
So a core part of what makes up your vision for a fiber shed is that it localizes the entire growing, making, and dyeing process and has that regional community as the backbone. To deviate away from that, when and how did our textile production begin to globalize with the supply chains, like you mentioned, becoming so complex and opaque that many brands today don't even know where their fibers come from? So what has been the direct or indirect impacts of globalizing the production of our clothing? Well, there's many impacts, and I, I could speak just a moment to like how we got here. In the United States, during the Industrial Revolution, there were incredible strides made to establish fair working conditions for manufacturing sites across the United States, whether it was steel, sewing, dyeing, spinning yarn, anything that created basically the the industry that we know of as the underpinnings of the United States as this kind of global rise to economic dominance, that was underpinned by a series of people building this country. And they fought very hard to establish fair conditions for these communities that were building out the country. There was obviously a lot of problems with how we built out that country. We did it on stolen land. We, you know, there's permeation of racism throughout the entire industrialization of the country. But Needless to say, you did have a strong labor union and workers' rights community fighting and really giving up in many cases their lives to see justice in, in working conditions in this country. And so from, I think, 1820 through maybe I think late 1950s or 60s, every decade the workers saw a growth in wages or, or an increase in wages related to their standard of living. So the American working class was able to grow into a middle class. And the kind of heyday of the United States post-World War II, you still saw this establishment of an increase in wages happening on a per-decade basis for working class communities. That really kind of hit a, a pinnacle point where it, we started to see this turn where it was like, hmm, corporations are, became larger, they became more monolithic, they became more powerful, they became more influential in our government, and they were able to design and negotiate in a very profoundly effective way trade deals that allowed us to offshore, of course, our manufacturing to get away from the wages and the lifestyle that had been established over you know, a century in this country. There was cheaper ways to make things with communities that we could basically exploit. And so that opaque nature of the supply chain was tethered to the exploitation of labor and land overseas. And that's really how capitalism has to work to keep accruing wealth for a small amount of people. It has to keep searching out new places to take things and create large margins so that someone is profiting off of whatever material culture is being created. So the effects of this are that when you have an opaque system, when you have a system designed by the very corporations that benefit profit-wise from these systems of production, you have a system that gets... It's like having the fox guarding the chicken coop. If you expect material safety, if you expect to have an ingredients list on your clothes, if you expect to know the actual climate impact of textile production, if you want to know the actual water impact, freshwater impacts or marine ecosystem impacts, it's going to be very hard because we don't really have checks and balances in these industries. We have a system that is the sustainability frameworks are created by the industry. The trade deals are negotiated by the industries. It takes a very 
robust civil society, which Fibershed is part of with many other orgs across the world to say, hey, this is not fair. There has to be a way to protect the culture of our country and countries writ large to produce their own endemic textiles and to do so in a way that cares for landscapes and people. And that should be a right. There should be a sovereign right to be able to protect your food shed and protect your fiber shed, protect your watershed. And the way trade deals are organized now, that if you're to do such things as try to protect landscapes, it can be seen as an affront to the profits of a certain transnational corporation, and they can sue your community for protecting those rights. Mm, and that's crazy. Yeah. So we have we're we're very building a local economy is not <laughs> it's not a simple thing in today's world. It takes a lot of a lot of policy uh, chops. Right. <laughs> I feel like across all industries, the same theme comes up again and again in that the things that are that we really need today may not necessarily take a lot of money to do, but the decisions that we need to have made, the power lies in these powerful and wealthy corporations. And it's not in their best interest to turn these mass scale systems into more localized, decentralized systems again. So exactly <laughs> going against the grain. <laughs> but by now, many people are aware of the differences between natural fibers and synthetic petroleum based fibers, such as polyester, acrylic and nylon. These are essentially microplastics that are nearly impossible to clean up once they're out there in the environment or in the ocean. And of course, we also need to keep in mind the nuance that exists among natural fibers because they're not all created equal. But I would love to center our dialogue here on dyes because that's an area I need to learn more about myself and that I also feel like there's even less of an awareness around. So what are the different types of dyes out there and how do synthetic dyes differ from natural ones? That's a great question. Well, my work is very centered in natural dyeing. I have done research to understand the synthetic dye history. Synthetic dyes were developed around 1856 or so by a chemist in the UK who was looking for a cure to malaria, and he had an explosion in his lab, and this kind of purple material landed on the walls. And he was like, hmm, color. And he had been using, I think, coal tar in this experiment. And so this whole kind of accident in the lab turned into eventually the first synthetic dye called mauve. I think it was M-A-U-V-E. And it became like I think Queen Elizabeth's favorite color. It took like 400 pounds of coal tar to create like one ounce of dye. Very fossil carbon, heavy and dependent textile dyes were that way. And to this day, they are synthetic dyes are reliant on the, you know, the fossil carbon industry. Most material culture is dependent. Modern material culture is dependent on the fossil carbon industry. Our plastics, our dyes, our fuel, our homes are, you know, it's everywhere. And so, you know, at that time, there wasn't a big clamor about the effects of extracting fossil carbon from the lithosphere and burning it into the atmosphere. There were a few scientists who predicted what would happen. There was a Swedish scientist actually in the 1700s who predicted the effects of CO2 in the atmosphere. But needless to say, it was not a global conversation. And so the advent of using fossil carbon in synthetic dyes, like I said, it's still happening today. The ratios are better. Affluent can be treated. So 
you ostensibly can have a circular system, a clean textile system using a synthetic dye. It's not that we can't be tidy about our usage, and there are many people doing that. There's also GOTS certified synthetic dyes, which is the Global Organic Trade Standard. They certify some synthetic dyes and they make sure that a critical list of heavy metals are not in those dyes. So there are ways of doing it cleanly, but by and large, 60 to 70% of dyes used globally today are azo dyes. Azo dyes are problematic in that they are also endocrine disrupting, meaning the way they metabolize in the body, they basically can disrupt the communication system between cells in the body. And that is uh, very harmful for, it, it affects fertility, it affects tissue development, it affects neurology, it, it has any, any cell communication is the foundation for healthy organ systems. Fertility in particular is very interesting because azo dyes, being an endocrine disruptor that affects all these systems in the human body, also these dyes affect systems in wildlife communities. And unfortunately, we haven't had enough third-party research. Again, we have the fox guarding the chicken coop. We have the industry guarding the science. We have the industry guarding the policies. So it's very hard to pay for independent research to understand how textile dyes could be affecting fertility in wildlife populations or any of the synthetic chemistry in the textile industry. Because many of these industrial chemicals, even the stuff we wash our clothes with and the the phthalates that are on the screen printings, I mean, you see endocrine disruptors across the board in, in these chemical compounds. And I would really like to understand the relationship between dyes, synthetic dyes, synthetic screen print inks, some of the finishing agents that help secure the dyes to the textile. I'm very curious about the impact between fertility and wildlife populations and the use of these chemicals. And again, not enough strong data points to the connections, but anything that's getting into our water and moving through our global system through tides and currents, through wind. And I mean, in California, we pick up the mercury that's being put into the atmosphere from burning coal in China. It's in our fog. So these chemicals and these compounds move globally and they get into our bodies in multiple ways. And I'd be very curious to see more money put towards understanding what I call the toxic trespass of textiles. And dyes are a major culprit because sometimes they don't bond fully to the textile and you can bring it home and you will wash out this endocrine disrupting material in your laundry water and it'll go out into your, basically wherever your water goes. It could go into a septic, it could go into a water processing facility, but in our area, it goes out to our bay. (laughs) How is that affecting amphibian life and how is it affecting bird life? How is it affecting fish life? There's just so many questions that I have and I'm very concerned that because these compounds are generally invisible, we are not able to track them well. It's expensive to track them and it's hard to point to the culprit of cancer. It's hard to point to the culprit of an autoimmune disease. But these diseases are skyrocketing and I do very much believe, and we have some data to prove, that synthetic dyes and synthetic chemistry in the textile industry at large is contributing to these jumps in uh, non-communicable diseases. 
In the plastic pollution dialogue, many people are aware that microplastics can shed from our clothing in the washing machine, bypass wastewater treatment systems because of their minuscule size, and end up polluting our waterways and marine ecosystems. So it sounds like synthetic dyes also need to fit into this conversation. And would this then imply that even natural fiber clothes, if dyed with synthetic persistent and dispersive dyes, can similarly cause harmful effects to our ecosystems? through the pathway of our washing machines? Technically, yes. If the molecules have not bonded to the fiber fully and are released, which is very common, then we have a free-ranging molecule that is, yes, issued through the, the wash water out into the bay or into the river, or it could be in any number of places, depending on where you live, that water ends up circulating through your, your watershed. So yes, well said, and we should be looking at that. And we should probably be looking at the finishing agents as well, you know, wrinkle-free, stain-free. <laughs> How is that getting out? And and I think there's a suite of critical compounds we should be having our eye on. But yeah, the microplastics, again, because you can look at and see them under a microscope, I'm assuming that that research is less expensive to do. Mm. <laughs> so it gets done. <laughs> so are most of these chemical dyes and chemical finishing agents, are most of those chemicals tied to the fossil fuel industry as well? Yes. And I'm not an organic chemist, but you know, you have compounds like you have benzene, naphthalene, toluene. You have a, a series of the, the, the way that the, I guess you call it the hydrocarbons can be broke down into all of these very useful <laughs> components that go into most of our synthetic chemistry. It's a base. It's a base compound. And so, yes, it's kind of dispersed amongst the supply chain. Given the chemistry of synthetic microplastic fibers, are all synthetic fibers necessarily dyed by synthetic chemical dyes? And how much of our natural fibers are have to be dyed by synthetics versus natural dyes? I mean, technically, the way people expect their clothes to perform today, they want impermanence. I think that's changing. But yes, if if your clothes are are washed a few times and a color fades, people you know do, respond negatively to that. Brands do so much testing to ensure that they're selling a product that will not get returned to them. They want it to last and last and last. And, and there's some efficacy in that attempt. You want to sell a quality product. But the the issues I see in, yes, natural fiber clothes, you know, even whatever, whatever type of fiber you're you're using, if the synthetic dyes tend to, yes, be more permanent. But that's part of the problem is that impermanence. It's that, that impermanent addiction to impermanence is what is fueling so much use of plastic fibers. It's what's fueling so much use of the finishing agents, and it's what's fueling so much use of the synthetic dyes. And I think there's a bigger cultural effort that needs to be made. And I'm not sure how many partners out there are going to be doing this work. I know when I teach a natural dye course, I talk a lot about the idea that all good things fade. All good things in the world fade. You know, humans fade, their hair turns gray. We're so youth-driven society, we think of that as a bad thing. But humans go back to the earth, our bodies go back to the earth, our clothes need to go back to the earth. We need to become microbe food at some point. <laughs> and the faster that can take place, 
the faster we are cycling nutrients into new life and the faster we are cycling the regenerative capacity of this earth. So the, the more we put impermanence in there, which is, I think, our own fear of death, we want everything to last forever, including ourselves, we actually throw off the nutrient cycling on the planet. We throw off the regenerative capacity of the earth. Life and death is the nature of this planet, and we have to cycle into those. We have to feel more comfortable as humans being in those cycles. And modern people, you know, it's like it's just a big kind of psychological and spiritual change we have to make. And that's what climate change is driving. <laughs> right. It's almost like we want to create this new reality for ourselves rather than really observing <laughs> these cycles of nature and just being a part of that. So well put. I love that. On page 109 of your book, you say, in the last decade, venture capital-backed biotechnology corporations have launched an aggressive marketing campaign to promote their purported so-called scientific solutions to the many global food and fiber challenges spawned by the industrial production model. Abetted by journalists and research funding from government agencies, these private corporations promote technologies they say can redesign nature, end quote, which really touches upon what we just discussed here, but why do you call this the false solution of synthetic biology? And what is the danger of us going down this path thinking that this will solve our ecological problems? Part of the reason these are false solutions, these the, the synthetic biology and my estimation from looking at things thermodynamically and mathematically is that first, like just in California alone, we are throwing away 1.4 million tons of textiles annually in this state. And they haven't done a lot of characterization data on like what kind of textile we're throwing away, but that's the, the, the grand sum. When you pair that with that we're keeping our clothes half as long, you can see why, you know, okay, we are driving this waste stream to become higher and it's ratcheting up annually because of, you know, the advent of fast fashion and the cultural idea that clothes are disposable. To me, the the challenges of our time, climate change, biodiversity protection and enhancement, mitigating and eradicating pollution, all these things are tied together. They're all symptoms of the same core issue. And that core issue is our relationship with things and our relationship with self. And I think that if you look at the waste streams and you are just a mathematician, you would say there is no need for new fiber. Then if you go to the virgin materials, the farmed materials in California, we are underutilizing, throwing away, composting, you know, mulching, discarding two-thirds of our coarse wool in this state. Our fine wool every year, I can barely find markets for. The wool that's even, you know, nights that you could wear next to skin. We are completely underutilizing the 21 micron count and lower wools. We can't find enough fires. And it's this incredible protein fiber that is so insulating and absorbs 30% of its weight in moisture. No utilization that's on par with the production. Cotton in the state, 250 million pounds of cotton. I know about three people who have something that's actually grown in California and they wear it. <laughs> and it's all because of this one woman, Lydia Went, who does California cloth foundry. And then also we have cotton classically bred by another woman, Sally Fox in the Cape Valley. A few people have started lions with her cotton, but it's amazing the underutilization and the underappreciation of the virgin materials that are being produced in a pulse 
every October and November that 250 million pounds of cotton is harvested. January through May of every year, 3.1 million pounds of wool is pulsing off the landscape, totally underappreciated. So for me to have Silicon Valley style biotech venture capital coming into California with 1.4 million tons being wasted and not recycled and not reclaimed and not upcycled and not moved back into as a feedstock into new textiles. First of all, you should just look at the waste numbers and say, we don't need new fiber. We actually need to reclaim that fiber that's being thrown over into the waste stream. And we need to find a succinct way of moving it back onto human skin. And we need a succinct way of generating rural economies that process and metabolize the virgin materials and put that on human skin. If we were to do that, there is not one ounce of new material even needed. So A, we don't need it. B, the the trade-off of these textiles based on these synthetic biology fibers, these are untested technologies within the ecosystem. And humans are perpetually underestimating ecosystem impacts. They can perpetually put synthetic compounds into these systems and they don't realize, oh, why do we have a fertility problem now? Why do we have a breast cancer problem? Why do we have all of these learning disabilities? It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's because you created a completely novel molecule and just thrust it out into the system and it had impact. I just, I'm kind of amazed at the lack of precaution taken and the idea that we get so kind of oversimplified in our conversations about animal agriculture, or we get so oversimplified in our understanding of agriculture as a whole, we say, well, okay, agriculture is bad. The fossil carbon industry is bad, 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 bad. We just need everything to be new. And that kind of oversimplification of life is it's what's driven so many revolutions that have left you with the same core problems that you started with. And those are political revolutions to social revolutions to material culture revolutions. Anytime you try to throw everything out, you often throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that is what a lot of the venture capitalists are doing to agriculture, particularly animal agriculture. They're saying we just don't need these animals on the landscape. And I would highly beg to differ because I don't think any of them are ecologists. And very few of these guys actually have any experience in the textile industry. So I think you're getting these kind of like, quote unquote, disruptive tech bros (laughs) getting a lot of money to disrupt an industry that they don't even understand. And that lack of care and that lack of sensitivity is very concerning to me. Silicon Valley needs to, in my opinion, throw its money around in more responsible ways. And it needs to think about the whole system that it's investing in, not just look for silver bullets. And they fundamentally need to stop messing with DNA. Because if you thought synthetic molecules were bad, what happens when you synthesize DNA? That's incestuous at a level that we may never be able to track. And that's what synthetic biology fundamentally does. It redesigns the DNA of nature to make it better. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) I feel like a lot of people look to all of these environmental impact assessments that have been coming out, tracking water usage, land usage, etc., and are 
taking this issue of overgrazing to mean that we shouldn't have animals on the landscape. We should remove animals from the landscape and taking this idea that agriculture requires land to inherently be bad. So we should try to, you know, churn as much as we can out of the existing farmlands that we have and really focus on yield. So all of these really simplify the complexity of nature. And it really just disallows us from truly understanding what it takes to enrich our ecosystems and restore all these broken cycles that we've disrupted. Mm. Again, beautiful summary. I think about the rumen, they call them ruminants, goats, sheep, cows. These are herbivores. They do something as miraculous as turn atmospheric carbon that has become carbohydrates, which is grass. They're able to turn atmospheric carbon into proteins driven through sunlight, which is the energy body that conducts the photosynthetic carbon capture. So you have sunlight driving this move of carbon. You need some kind of energy to break molecules. So CO2 comes out of the atmosphere. It goes into a plant through the stoma. The plant breaks the molecule using the energy of the sun, releases oxygen for us to breathe, and then transforms that carbon into many things. But one of it is sugar. And it goes, it moves that sugar below ground and it feeds this cascade of microbes and fungi that do amazing things to sequester that glucose far into the earth's below ground storage of carbon. That below ground carbon storage creates so much fertility in life. And these rumen, these ruminants coming across the landscape, as they have done for millennia, way before humans existed, when they eat that grass, they stimulate that grass to regrow. Now, overgrazing will destroy the capacity of the grass to regenerate itself. But if you biomimetically graze animals, meaning you move them through the landscape as they would have moved through the landscape with predators or as they would have moved through the landscape for fresh grass, if you prescriptively thoughtfully move them, the grass will regrow. And as it's regrowing, it's literally capturing more atmospheric carbon to rebuild itself. So that's regeneration. And that act of the grass regenerating itself is what we need to pull the legacy load of carbon out of the atmosphere. And without a ruminant, which is filled, their, their stomachs are filled with more microbes than any, I mean, maybe earthworms and ruminants have the capacity to, to basically take organic carbon and inoculate it with all the microbes needed to create living soil. And without these little, I mean, some people, I think, oversimplify it, but I do sometimes, it's a nice comment to be able to say these, these ruminants are like walking compost machines. And I don't like using machine analogies because nature is so much more complex. But if people need to understand the importance of animals on the landscape, think about it like you get to move a composter across the landscape and deposit compost across broad acreage. It's very powerful. And if we were to say that herbivores don't belong on this landscape because a few humans have overgrazed systems and desertified systems, we are missing the basic and fundamental relationship that we should be working to enhance versus throw it out. 
You're listening to Green Dreamer, and this has been part one of our two-part conversation with Rebecca Burgess. So stay tuned as we're going to conclude in the following episode with part two, picking up from here to explore why the actual solutions we need to address our ecological crises will likely be undervalued and not given enough attention towards, what localizing our textile and even food systems can make possible for us, and more. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon again in the following episode. 